0: And I've just created a free guide to help you understand your unique human design blueprint. It's called the Human Design Advantage, and you can get your copy over at samanthariley.global.com forward slash advantage.
1: Leading yourself the hardest thing because you, mm. you're the hardest mission you will ever be given you know, because you know all the tricks to derail yourself. Mm. You, know, you you know all the, the tricks to talk yourself out of something that's uncomfortable and and I, I just think that it's a difficult thing to do because unless you hold yourself accountable you'll never really be successful
0: Each week, I interview successful entrepreneurs and deep dive to discover the exact strategies that they've used to build their business so that you can experiment and implement these strategies in your business too. Welcome to the Thought Leaders Business Lab. Welcome to the show, Bram. It is great to have you joining me here.
1: No, I do have one question just because I want to make you edit it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, guess what? I don't edit. My hubby does. (laughs) I
1: was joking anyway.
0: (laughs) That's actually really funny. I I am going to I was going to say I'll start that again cuz Leon's going to kill me but I, actually I will I'll do it again. No, just keep
1: <laughs> rolling. This is good. This is authentic. Authentic authenticity is what you want in leadership, Sam.
0: Ah, well there you go. That that's just a little bit of a smart way to start the show, isn't it? there you go. So it's awesome to have you here. For those who didn't hear our interview on your podcast, the Warrior You podcast, we've actually Mm. known each other a very long time. And Mm. before I hit record, I actually think, and I'm not quite sure, but I think apart from my family, you are the person who I still stay in contact with. And it's been for the longest time. I can't think of anyone else that I'm still in contact with that I knew before I met you. So it's been a while. Who would have thought? Correct. Who would have thought? And Especially seeing, well, for those who don't know, we actually went to high school together. Mm -hmm. I hated high school.
1: Mm -hmm. Which is very strange for me to hear you say that because you were pretty smart.
0: Yeah, we we all just do what we need to do to get through life. And I think that's sort of another, Mm. you know, segue that we can take into leadership. But Mm -hmm. right back from when you and I knew each other, and I think we were in each other's class, like the whole way through high school, Mm -hmm. um, I reckon that you and I were probably the most focused people and we knew what we wanted from such a young age. So no, Mm -hmm. my school diary was covered with pictures of dancers
1: (laughs) right from the time
0: we met. And Mm -hmm. I can remember that your school diary was covered in army pictures right back then.
1: Oh, army stuff. And
0: and when you think about most 13 year olds, well, I know I've got a a son who's about to turn 21 and he still hasn't decided what he wants to do when Mm. he grows up. And I'll put that in air quotes because Mm. I don't believe that we do one thing for our whole entire lives and especially not as we move further into the future, I think that, you know, we will be moving through different phases in our, in our career so much more quickly than we ever have before. Um, But yeah, super, super intriguing that at 13 years of age, both of us knew exactly what we wanted to do with our life.
1: When I look back on it, it is interesting. I'm not sure I completely agree with you that some people don't know what they're going to do and then do that forever. I think some people do do the same thing forever you know, we keep hearing about the future of work, you know, but I think the future of work was always here and is here now and will be in the future. And, um, I think you and I just, you know, I think you had the makings of an entrepreneur even then probably you didn't realize it. No, Um, no idea. No. And, and, and I knew I was going to be, you know, a soldier and then an officer and, and would have a career in the, in the military for whatever reason, I just knew it. There was other people in that class that probably had an idea of what they were going to do they probably just weren't as almost well how what would you say Um, I would probably fanatical
0: I was going to say a one-eyed focus but fanatical probably is another way to to put it
1: yeah and and whether that's nature or nurture like I didn't come from an army family at all all of my family were firemen so my dad was a fireman my uncle was a fireman my grandfather on my mother's side was a fireman. My brother became a fireman for a short amount of time as well as a soldier after me. I just knew that there was something about joining the military, whether it was the travel and escaping Adelaide. So whether it was a type of Anzac type thing, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I just I just knew that I had a sense of adventure that wasn't going to be fulfilled in the fire brigade. And also, I had a, quite a tough father to grow up with. Not, not tough in a physical sense. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a bad person, but he was emotionally void as was his dad. And as was his dad's dad, because they, you know, they, they grew up through settling settling in South Australia through the depression, world war one, world war two, sort of, sort of, you know, they all survived those things. And I think the men just became void of emotion. So my, my dad was very difficult on, on me. And especially with me at school, And he quite often would say, well, you'll never be able to be a fireman. You're not smart enough to ever be a fireman. So he put this in my mind at a really early age that I needed to seek something else. And I think that the army for boys in the 90s was probably equivalent to, I don't know, this is probably going to make people angry at me, but probably equivalent to a girl becoming a stripper. You know, it was (laughs) like, what am I? what am I going to do? I've got nothing. I'm, okay, I'll join the army. And I'm sure there's plenty of strippers that have gone on to be billionaires, but you know, as there has been plenty of soldiers to go on to have entrepreneurial companies in the future, it's just that I was, I wasn't lost, but I wasn't able to focus my pure attention at going in the fire brigade, which I think I would have dearly loved. But I was, I was having all this negative pushback from my father saying, you're not smart enough to get in there. You're not doing well enough at school, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, fast forward twenty years, I've got a got a degree, graduate certificates as well. You know, so clearly I wasn't done. Um, You know, so it was just that people learn at different rates, and yeah, because of that, I think it reinforced it reinforced my desire to find something that was going to give me some sort of almost my own personal, how would you say it, Um, brand? Yeah, my tribe. So that's where I ended. That's where I ended up.
0: Mm. So first off, I want to say to everyone that's listening, like we are going to be talking about leadership today. And I think that you're one of the, the most equipped people to be on this show talking about leadership. You were in the military for 20 years. You mm. did receive a distinguished service medal for leadership in, con- in combat. And mm. on behalf of Australians, I want to say thank you for your service. And, you know, I want to make sure that that's on on air because I think that that's just quite incredible.
1: So thank you, Sam. I, I deeply appreciate hearing that from you. But not that I need validation from anyone. It's, it's an interesting thing that's crept into Australian society. Um, thank you for your service. And it's very American. And American society is, is very, very patriotic and in some senses, nationalistic. And it makes me, and I know a lot of other people, really uncomfortable to hear, um, thank you for your service. And and the reason is it, it is almost like in our culture, it's actually a real honor to serve. Mm-hmm. So because of that, and also because a lot of the, a lot of my time in the nineties was spent playing touch football, drinking Gatorade, mm-hmm. running competitions, Um, Nintendo when it came out, Chasing Girls, you know, all the sort of stuff that a teenager and then a young 20-year-old does in the army, in an Uh infantry battalion. Uh And, And then the deployments to places like Somalia, doing special forces selection, going for a year on exchange to the United Kingdom. Traveling all around the world on all sorts of different exercises, culminating in me being the head of selection for special um, forces and and also being in the international engagement uh, team in the headquarters of special operations. All of that stuff was amazing. And when I hear someone go, hey, I want to thank you for your service, you've got no idea how awesome it was. No, thank you for letting me do that as a job. It was incredible. And even now, I mean, I'm still I'm still an active reserve member now, which a lot of people don't realize. But, you know, every day you put on a uniform is just, it's an honor to serve. So there's a real, when people say, hey, thank you for your service, or, you know, they started doing this weird thing on planes where they were clapping people coming on planes and stuff. And I was like, what on earth are you people doing? And that's difficult because you can never say that to someone like i am just said to you now uh-huh. when they say it in the street because you don't have time to explain that.
2: Yeah, so, absolutely. Um
1: so I just say, Hey, hey, thanks, you know, um, appreciate it. And then I'm really embarrassed, shuffle my feet and move on.
2: Well,
0: and I'm really glad that you brought that up because you're right, I did get it from spending a lot of time in the US. Mm. And they're very patriotic and they and you mm. know, well, you've been over there, you know what it's like. And, you know, the military always get on the planes first and most carriers. It's just people would always be saying thank you for your service and I'm also from a military background. My grandfather was in the 39th Battalion and we grew up knowing not to talk about it. We never were allowed to ask about it. It was never spoken about. We all just knew that, you know, there was a lot of things that had happened. And when I went over to the US and people were saying, thank you for your service, I thought, you know what, I am going to bring this back because I don't think that we should um, not have this conversation because we have this tall poppy thing here in Australia and I think that it's time to let go of it. And I think it is okay to, to thank people. And I think that, you know, you, you said you shuffle your feet and you get a bit embarrassed. But I think that it's, if we all start embracing this and thanking people and being grateful, it will become normality rather than the opposite. And I think it's about time that, that as Australians we got rid of this tall poppy crap.
1: Mm. No, They're going right. on, my, mm. on my
0: soapbox there for a bit.
1: <laughs> mm. I'm shedding it to you.
0: which is funny because you did mention that you came from a family that um, of men that were emotionally, you know, devoid, not really talking about their emotions. So going Mm. into leadership, how did that affect you?
1: It took a long time for me to understand the importance of emotional intelligence. And I think I've only been as successful as I might've been because I was able to emotionally connect with people. Mm -hmm. And that's not, not to say, you know, emotion conjures up, um, falling apart, but it's more an empathy towards your fellow human. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, it's made up of all these different aspects, emotional intelligence. And and in a leadership perspective, it's about listening and, and actually understanding what the other person's saying rather than just listening to respond. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that that was probably the, probably the difference between my father and I is that I would listen to people to understand what it was they were trying to say and interpret that as opposed to who how he would go about it would be to listen to, to know how he was going to interject and respond. And so, yeah, a lot of emotional intelligence in leadership does come down to a self reflection and understanding and being, being humble enough. And I say quite often, you can't get fat eating humble pie. <laughs> um, I think that's one of the most important aspects to to humility in leadership and emotional intelligence is to be able to say, oh, you know, what I might have been wrong in this instance, and then to actually to actually say that out loud to the person that you're talking to, and then take a step back and um, and then change your behaviours or the way that you move forward.
0: Tell us what where did this come from? So how did you understand emotional intelligence? Did you have someone that you looked up to? Were you watching it in your leadership team? Was it something that you just intuitively understood
1: no i think that what happened over time was i was able to see a pattern and the pattern was when i did this this would occur so as a young corporal so you get promoted you get promoted from technical competence not necessarily your leadership ability. Mm-hmm. Although we do leadership courses, they're not particularly designed around how to inspire, motivate, provide direction and purpose. But so what was happening was as a young corporal, I would go, right, we're gonna get this done, let's go. And I wasn't the biggest, fastest, strongest guy in the in the section, but I was in charge.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Quite often quite often there'd be pushback or there'd be other ways, or there'd be this, or there'd be that. But then if I would come and tackle the same problem with, hey, this, the boss has asked us to do this. Um, Who's got some ideas around it. I'd get collaboration. And then I would understand that I was getting collaboration through an empathetic leadership style by understanding where people's different values and draw intrinsic drivers were leading them into the team. And then I'd be able to look at that and go, huh, when I do this, this occurs when I, when I show this sort of um, emotional uh, control, and and or emotional intelligence and obviously this wasn't what i was thinking but it was happening mm-hmm. then the following occurs so then i would do it again then i would do it again and it was reinforcing 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 and then at some point and i think it was through university i did an international relations degree majoring in peace studies i'm pretty sure that during the peace studies they started to talk about in, um, emotional intelligence Mm -hmm. and I I started to understand the patterns I'd already known about in my head and I could start to put my finger on what that was yeah and so and so it's led me to the point where I am now which is I understand it's a building block a foundational piece if you like of emotional intelligence for leadership
0: it's interesting that you said that most people are promoted because of their technical competence you know we see it in healthcare we see it in teaching we see it in lots of Mm -hmm lots of corporate jobs. How did you go from being um, a soldier? And I don't know the right, the right terms here, but basically starting off in the military, how did you go from being that person that more than, just about more than any other, I guess, industry where you have to absolutely hundred percent listen and do whatever you're told, you know, you can't bring in different ideas to transitioning into a leadership position. Because I think that you would have a, a really, really deeper insight than a lot of people on this this piece. I think this is interesting.
1: Such a reductionist. You've provided such a reductionist view of how it works too, which is great because what you're doing is talking about the Hollywood version of the army uh-huh. from from an outsider's perspective. Because you yep. all, all you all you see is Training Day. Yeah, yeah. People, yeah. people yelling and screaming and carrying on, but actually. What actually occurs is there's, and I'm not, I know you're setting this up, Sam. I know you are. But anyway, <laughs> there's there's a, there's a degree there's a degree of imposed discipline that mm-hmm. that is applied through your training establishments, whether it be for officers or for or for soldiers, and that imposed discipline it's quite brutal actually, mm-hmm. and it, and it happens over you know 13 weeks in some cases, but what what slowly ha- you know you, you get there on the first day and they shave your head. Yeah, and so you're looking around at all these other people with shaved heads. Well, guess what? You have no say in that. That is imposed on you. Yeah, and then you have to make beds with hospital corners every morning before six o'clock. Or well, that bed is going out the window. Yeah, like I mean, I mean, your whole locker has to look a certain way. You're given a photo. That's the way your locker looks. And you need, and by locker, I mean your wardrobe. And so your wardrobe looks like that. And and you've got four pairs of socks and all of them have smiley faces. And one pair of socks can be in the washing. I was 17 years old. I had to be shaved by 6.15. The smell of palm olive shaving cream (laughs) still (laughs) triggers me to this day. I wasn't ready to shave at 17. (laughs) So, so, So there's all this imposed discipline. But then what happens over time is they slowly start to take away the imposed discipline and they give you enough rope to hang yourself. Mm -hmm. And there's a defense force disciplinary act underneath it all where you can be charged. They can take money off you. They can do this, they can do that, they can do the other. And so if you're not showing the self-discipline, there's a feedback function that comes in and says, Hey, you didn't do this. I'm going to take some money off you. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's still a underlying requirement, but most people don't need that because the imposed discipline is so brutal that you, you realize, you slowly realize the discipline equals freedom. If I do this, no one's going to mess with me. If I have this done, I can be there on time. I'm still five minutes early for every single place I'm going to be. Yep. If you're not five minutes early, you're late, right? So so that imposed discipline disip- disappears and then self-discipline occurs. Uh-huh. So, so what you then have is in the infantry battalions and especially where I ended up in special forces, is you then have all of these highly motivated self-disciplined people and you get them into teams of teams, you know, and then what they can do is start to solve really complex problems because you're not saying, I want you to jump this high. Now do it. What you're doing is saying, Hey, how high does everyone think we have to jump? Let's do this. Let's work it out. Mm. And you start to apply that to complex things like asymmetric warfare, guerrilla warfare in Afghanistan. And you're sitting around trying to solve really difficult problems of, you know, moving masses of people around to save them from, you know, whatever the the counterinsurgency, you know, theme is at the time and you need to feed certain people here. You need to provide protection to certain people there. You've got all sorts of things going on, operations, air operations, you know, and and all of these very motivated, self-motivated, self-disciplined people are coming together and coming up with solutions. So what you're seeing on on the Hollywood staff or even some of the adverts for the army is just the first, you know, 90 days. And after that, it's, it's a lot different.
0: Let's talk about the, the, that problem or that decision-making, because you're talking about complex problems that are life and death problems. I'm guessing zero time sometimes to make those problems. I'm guessing that some of those problems need to be made instantaneously again, I've not been in the military, so I don't know. What are some of the, like the learnings or your takeaways from being able to make those problems? Because you see, you know, when you're in a stressful situation, I I think I've read stats that it's something like 2% of your brain, like your brain power goes to being able to make those problems when you're in a stressful situation. So what are some of the things that you guys did to be able to make those decisions that quickly?
1: Well, I love that question because it goes right to the core of who I am as a person. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's all about structure. And that comes down to, and and I know that you've heard me say this before, that motivation is fleeting for anyone, whereas consistency builds champions. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same. It's the same in understanding a complex problem. If, If you have consistently visualized that problem before and have come up with templated solutions that you can throw over the top of it, you're able to react faster. Mm-hmm. And in a in a combat situation, reacting fast is is generally the sort of the fine line between winning or losing or life or death. So, a lot of cases, a lot of in a lot of occasions, and the question is, if you're presented with a really complex problem, you want to be able to see that problem in a similar way that you've seen other problems before and you've had solutions at work. And so you throw those solutions at that problem. Sometimes it becomes instinctive. So people will say, well, what happens when you come across a set of problems that you haven't encountered before? Well, that's my job. Mm -hmm. The job is my job is to design and, and develop a whole kit bag of solutions to very complex things, whether that is an enemy ambush or a vehicle hitting an IED or whether it is being, you know, where, where there is something along the lines of talking to the governor of Tarenkow and, and he's angry because his men haven't been paid and they've all got rifles and they've all switched those rifles on to instant and now now there's a big standoff between the police, the army and then the special forces on the side and you have to be able to navigate your way through that. Well, the thing is I've visualised all those permutations of the worst possible problem, the second, third order effects and because of that visualisation, we've developed and we've talked about socialised structures to apply to it. So it's really similar, for instance, to a business having a crisis management plan. If you never sit around the boardroom and look at each other and go, okay, if this happens, what are we going to do? If you've never done that, then the shock, the decision shock becomes very real. Mm -hmm. But if you've actually all sat there together and gone, okay, Bram, run us through our crisis management plan for if there is an earthquake in Adelaide. What are we going to do? Okay, well, do you have your servers on site? Yes, we do. All right. What we should do is think about having a second set of servers somewhere with backup tapes. That's that's the first thing. Okay, well, let's do that. Okay. Suddenly, there's an earthquake three weeks later in Adelaide. Guess what? They visualized that in a time and space that was comfortable for them, safer, safe space. Mm-hmm, right? They, mm-hmm. they visualized that in a safe space and they can already make a decision. Well, we know we're going to be working from home and our backup servers are located in Port Adelaide that weren't affected. Mm-hmm. So, so they, so they have visualized, they have visualized worst case at a time and space that was safe for them, and they've got structure to apply to it. People are caught out when they don't have structure or they haven't visualized worth. In fact, it, it's more. I'm not a psychologist, but, <laughs>
2: okay, but, <laughs> but. <laughs> but,
1: in my opinion, post-traumatic stress, from what I've seen, I've seen a lot of this. Post-traumatic stress is triggered, is triggered. By people who have either no control over the situation mm-hmm. or they haven't been been able to visualize permutations of that plan and then being able to react. So they were helpless.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When I see people who have, they visualized worst case and then worst case happens to them, then they're not as, as affected
0: mm.
1: because they can make a decision.
0: And it's like, I'm guess not only can they can make a decision, but they've already got some ideas of what the next step is.
1: Right. So we were, we were travelling along in a vehicle convoy cross-country. Mm-hmm. So I'm already, I'm already trying to remove a threat by not travelling on the roads. So we're travelling cross-country. Um, of course, there's always a risk of that because the Taliban are watching our vehicle movements for a decade.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, and there's only so many places you can drive with the sort of vehicles that we have. So they know we're probably, if we're not going to go on the path, we're probably going to go in this particular area cross country. So there's IEDs there anyway, okay. But I've removed some of the problem. So we hit an IED out in the middle of nowhere, not on a sealed track, but somewhere where they're smart enough to know these guys are going to be traveling. Okay. My front vehicle is my reconnaissance vehicle. So So the people in that vehicle are all my reconnaissance team members, but none of them are in that vehicle they're all patrolling either on motorbikes or quad bikes up ahead of the main column on high features watching us. So the only person in that vehicle is one person because the likelihood of that vehicle hitting an ID first is, is very, very high, the mm. higher than any other vehicle. Mm. So I've already removed, I've re- removed some more of the problem. So I'm just removing parts of the problem, but I've done that in isolation to everything else. I've planned for that. So we do hit an ID, but we hit it with a vehicle. Uh, sorry, an improvised explosive device. But we do hit it with a vehicle where there's only one person and it, it's the driver. The vehicle is also designed to take a certain amount of punishment from improvised explosive devices. So we've, we're slowly making this less and less and less severe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm, in, I'm in the second vehicle, but I have gone through months and months and months, years of training for this. Well, I've, I've seen that vehicle blow up in front of me in my dreams. Like I've seen it, I've visualized it I, mm-hmm. and it happened. And the day it happens, I mean, I can't even really remember if I saw it, but mm. I did see, I've seen it before, but it happened. And then guess what? We've got a drill for that. And we know through different intelligence, through different scenarios that have happened over time, that when you hit an IED, quite often it's followed up by a complex ambush. So people shooting at you from other areas, while you respond to the people who are injured, but we've already got a drill to deal with that because, because that is the intelligence we were given three or four weeks ago. So we go into that drill. and removes more of the threat, more of the risk. In the end, we have a vehicle that's lost a tire because it's hit a bit of explosive. No one's hurt. No one's injured. The, the enemy never get a chance to ambush us because we're all over them like white on rice. You know? And so we are slowly but surely removing the problem. If that had been a water bottle repair company, it, that doesn't exist. I'm just making it up. Just trying to show you the, the lowest common denominator in the military. If they had been driving and hadn't prepared for that, hadn't trained for it, hadn't visualized it, didn't have structure to place over the top of it, didn't have tactics, techniques, procedures, didn't have all of that framework in place, they'd have hit that. Three or four guys would be killed. The The, the combat leader would, would have post-traumatic stress for the rest of their life. The platoon sergeant would probably probably be on stress leave as well half the guys would never talk to each other again. There'd be all this info. You know, you can see where I'm going with
2: it. Mm-hmm, mm.
1: But for us, it's like another day in the office. Yeah. So, so for me, complexity needs to be broken down into component parts and then you have visualization of second, third order effects of how you deal with those component parts. And that's like any problem.
0: Mm, mm. Now, I didn't know what you were going to say and now I know why you had, you had a bit of a laugh when I asked that because I know that you know that that's the way I break everything down. That I, I believe that systems and frameworks is the freedom of everything. And when I say freedom, I don't just mean freedom of, you know, Having time off. I mean, the freedom of not being strangled by these decisions that we need to make. And definitely, from an entrepreneurial perspective, anyone that I that is in my world that is successful. They have the ability to break things down, reverse engineer them, preempt, I guess, everything that's that's going to happen. It's almost you know the old saying, "Preparation is the breakfast of champions," and I'm a big believer in that. And we're seeing it at the moment in something that, and this is. Um, Interesting, from a business perspective, we're seeing this right now with the coronavirus, that Mm. a lot of people are getting caught up in the sensationalism in the media. Now, don't for any second think that I'm downplaying this. However, the media are saying what they're they're saying to get headlines. Mm. And really as far as, you know, I know that after we do this interview, um, my next scheduled call is with someone from, from the health industry that saw SARS go through because I want to understand what they're seeing from a health perspective so I can start to put it together with what do we need to prepare for as business owners to be able to work through this. And, and you know, and it's about that preparation and not getting caught up in things that really don't help us to get through a situation.
1: So, so my business is in leadership. I lost tens of thousands of dollars worth of work yesterday, $60,000 worth of work yesterday, because some of my clients are now moving towards having no, uh, no more than 50 people in a conference and talking about not having more than 10 people in meetings. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole heap of leadership uh, conferences and training that have now just disappeared out of, out of my pipeline. Mm -hmm. And I'm a small business that can't really absorb those sort of massive changes in the market. Luckily, I've got other things that I can do. One of those is reserve army time, and you know, another one is the leadership book and podcasting and all that sort of good stuff. But it makes me it makes me think that yeah, we, we are very in a very fragile state mm-hmm. uh, society as a whole. There's a lot more. There's a lot more to this. There's a lot oh, more to what totally. people think. Um, there's, there's some state actors involved in this, which, you know, I probably won't go too far into, but it's just very, very interesting that Russia and Saudi Arabia are now having price gouging on oil right around this same time and and watching the demise of the US markets. So there's a lot more to this than meets the eye, um, you know, and watching Italy, 65 million people being told to stay at uh, home for the next, you know, best part of a month, Mm. um, I I do think we need to prepare ourselves that there's going to be a little bit of saber rattling going on and that we may see ourselves, yeah, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And interestingly, if it's a pandemic, it's actually also a viral almost information pandemic so the information that's coming out is wrong maybe this information i'm saying is wrong it's part of the viral pandemic but yeah i think that i think that we will come out the other side of it and governments will will need to understand they need to message better they need to provide better leadership better guidance um talk about things and have some sort of a facility to talk about things more openly and transparently and quickly so at pace to the population
0: Mm, and it's a, a huge conversation that I know that you and I could probably talk about on a whole other episode, but we're not going to. <laughs>
2: mm.
0: So you were you were in the military and you've come mm. out and now you have your own business. Mm. What, what did you learn while you were in the military that helped you make that transition into entrepreneurship? How different are they from your perspective? Because I think that the world of business and entrepreneurship is just a crazy roller coaster, but I'm guessing the military is too. So, you know, what are those traits? I guess you could say that that helped you to be able to succeed. What you're doing now,
1: um, you know, I'm going to share something with you that's probably the the, the most interesting thing that I found. Mm-hmm. The hardest thing for me was waiting for permission and. Mm-hmm. In the in the army, I always had someone a higher rank than me. I left as a major, so I wasn't a junior person by any stretch. But you know, when you're a major, you've got lieutenant colonels. You know, I was making I was making a brigadier coffee. Mm-hmm. You know, like like I was a no one. You know? <laughs> so I was always looking for I was always looking for permission, and when I started to move outside of the army, I was trying to, I was thinking about businesses and doing this and that. And I was, and I was always being held back by, by waiting for a lofty, a lofty sort of sign from the universe or, or some general would come down and go, yes, Brad, you can do this. And it wasn't until really the advent of Instagram. I started to see a few of my friends from special forces community who had their own businesses. And I was analyzing what was making these guys so successful. So, You've got guys like Adam McNamee who founded, you know, was set up True Grit. You know, there's Anthony Morehouse who set up this amazing business, Dynamic, which sold for a, a quite a good return, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there was, you know, all, all these other guys. And in the end, what I could put it down to was that all of them didn't ask for permission to do what they were doing. They just did it and screw the consequences. Whereas I was all like, oh, consequences, you know. And it was strange to me because... You know, in, especially in special forces, you generally do things and you, and then you beg forgiveness. You don't ask permission to do it. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, know, yeah, I've stuffed this up and sorry. You know, and yet when I got out, it was like, well, I don't have that framework in place.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so, and it's like when I wrote the first book, um, The Fighting Season, you know, everyone was saying to me, oh, have you asked the command? Have you asked Special Operations Command to release that? Now, I completely completely got out of the army at that point. I wasn't in a reserve capacity. I was compl- I was Mr. Connolly. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing in the book that can't be found on the internet. Mm-hmm. No places, no names, no skills, no techniques, no procedures, all on the internet. And it still amazed me that people were saying to me, Have you asked Special Operations Command permission to write this?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it scared me. It scared me that I hadn't. And then and then I just dawned on me one day like, God, you know, like get a grip, mate. You're a civilian. You can do whatever you damn well please. And mm-hmm. so I did. I wrote that one and then I wrote another one and then and then I've written a leadership book as well. And I'll probably end up by the time this comes out, I'll probably be court-martialed for it. I don't know. But, <laughs>
2: That's... but, but, it,
1: <laughs> but at the end but at the end of the day, I think that that was the first thing that I was scared of. And I know a lot I know that you've talked about this with people as well, like right? stop waiting for permission to, mm-hmm. to go and be great at something. And so yeah, so that was the that was the hardest thing for me to get over, was looking for permission. And then after that i I just think that the range that I had of skills as opposed i'm not a specialist in any one thing i've got a really broad range of skills um, across lots of modal skill domains and I think that you know that really helped me i mean like like yourself I had to learn how to you know how to use WordPress really early I, I had to learn computers you know in the 90s um, I had to learn to write properly and speak eloquently. I had I had to be able to stand up in front of big groups of people and brief. I had a, I've you know I've briefed General Cosgrove, I've briefed the Prime Minister, I've briefed important people. I know how to do all that stuff. So, mm-hmm. so for me, this huge range of skills that I had probably set me up to be an entrepreneur. In fact, I think David Epstein's just written a book on it recently called Range, which is probably worth a listeners getting hold of if they want to know a bit more about that. And then, yeah. And so for me, it was then applying all those things I'd learned in special forces and applying them to the problem sets that I encountered as, a, as an entrepreneur. And you know what? I'm not a very good entrepreneur, to be fair.
2: Well, I, I actually- I do a
1: lot.
0: I would say that you're talking a bit of crap now. You're doing well. Well, I do enough. to do
1: well. <laughs> I do well enough to survive, right? And, I, and, I, and I'm happy, which is probably a measure in anyone's, you know, a good measurement. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. And we're not all going to be the next bloody, you know, amazing entrepreneur that's going to make millions and millions of dollars. But some people just go out there and put content out, and I think that's a great thing.
0: I think that we don't all need to be the next Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg. That you're dead right. That if you're happy, I was
1: thinking more Ty Lopez. Like, I mean,
0: oh, tai, why Topez? Lopez? <laughs>
1: well, I, I love, I love Ty. You know, I love, I love, I love his presence. I just wonder how many of those Ferraris and Lamborghinis he actually owns when he's when he's selling me his books in a box. Anyway. And,
0: that, and that's why I said Lytopies. You need to have a look at it on uh, on YouTube. I, very I, funny. Sent him, <laughs> I,
1: sent, I sent him a message on Instagram. I said, hey, man, um, I'm going to follow you for one year. You had better after one year to the day I'm going to unfollow you if in that one year you haven't proven to me that you know what you're talking about. And then on February the 3rd this year I unfollowed him.
0: And hang on, I've got to know, did he actually answer your message on Instagram? Of course Exactly. (laughs) There's, I think, there's a lot of people that that are coming out of corporate that have a huge expertise that really do struggle with starting their own business because, and it, I believe, it comes back to that framework. You know, for people, and I've watched it with with my husband, even he was in corporate for 30 years. And five months ago, he's come into our business and he's had an insight for five years onto how I work and my business. But definitely the biggest thing that he struggled with is all of a sudden the frame, his frameworks weren't there. He was still following my frameworks, but there's a part of the business yeah. where he had to create his own. And that was yeah. definitely one of the biggest things. And he might not like me to say this, but then again, I don't think you'll really care. It is something that he still struggles with. You know, even just this morning, he sat down, he went, Sam, I just, I need the next, I need to, you know, get the next brain dump out of your head. I don't understand what's happening here.
1: Yeah, and you, one of those frameworks is, is is for the army perspective is the fortnightly pay and for mm-hmm. most corporate is a monthly paycheck. Mm-hmm. And when that suddenly disappears can subconsciously really affect you. And now. It all made sense to me when someone showed me a globe, a, a pictorial reference of a globe with all of this money moving around the globe in huge streams. So there's all this money out there. And what some entrepreneurs don't feel comfortable in is taking it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: in actually reaching up and taking taking the money mm-hmm. and, and doing it. In, in a legal way. And so when you can as an entrepreneur, when you can understand there's all this money out there. If I've got a good enough product, a good enough funnel, I can bring that money into that funnel and give value to someone. You know, our warrior you program for kids who want to join the ADF, that was that was one of those stepping stone entrepreneurial things to me because I was like I've got all this stuff in my head. I turned it all into lessons, thousands and thousands of hours worth of writing lessons. Mm-hmm. And now and now I'm going to sell that, and people are going to buy it. And that felt and the first person that bought it, um, who's now in the army, and he's actually a, a friend of mine who over the internet. I need to meet him in person, but he bought a full subscription for a year, which at the time was five hundred dollars.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, yeah, and and when I received that first money in there, I was like, oh my god, <laughs> someone's you know like I felt fraudulent to the mm. point where. To the point where at some stage, we really looked at the business and what the modules were and how much the work had gone into it. And I felt like $500 was too much. So we changed it to a fortnightly subscription service. Mm-hmm. And all those people who had paid up front the $500, I think there was like eight of them, I paid them all back that $500, like I refunded it all. Wow. Because it just, it just did not feel right to me. And that's the thing as an entrepreneur, if it doesn't feel right, create something that does feel right.
0: You know. I think that's really valuable. However, just just for the, the, um, the conversation, I also want to touch on that. A lot of people think that it feels fraudulent or has that same feeling, that imposter syndrome feeling, because the, the most value that any of us can add is the thing that comes easiest to us. And because it comes so easy to us, we believe that it comes easy to everyone because I've also had that thought before thinking, I can't charge for that. And realizing that in actual fact, people have no idea what I do. So that feeling can also be because you're adding the, the best value that you can, but also not understanding your own value.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's a, a beautifully said, Sam. Honestly, for, for me, that's exactly what it was. And I felt like I was taking money for something that I shouldn't have been taking money for because, you know, I would have done it all day, every day. So I talked about how great the army is and why they should join Mm. Um, so, yeah, but I think that also making sure the price structure is right. And if you change the price structure of something and other people are getting a better deal than people previously, then then it, it's, if there's only a few people who are affected, then, it, then in good faith, I think it's a good thing to say, hey, let me, let me show you the, my values. And my values are, you know, to, to look after you and to, to, to make sure that you don't get the rough end of a deal sort of thing. Mm. Um, but I mean, a lot of businesses change their price structure and then the people previously, it's just a, it's just a given that they just, are um, uh, end up having a bad, you know, a bad experience. You know? so
2: mm.
1: In this Absolutely. case, I wanted to make sure that they were looked after.
0: Nice. I like it. Mm. Leadership. Mm. A lot of people in entrepreneur or who are entrepreneurs, especially, you know, most of the people that listen to this show are coaches and consultants Um, Mm. a lot of our teams are quite small you know compared to me when we had our dance studio and our retail stores and we had a team of 35 I'm not running anywhere near that amount of team now Um, a lot of people that are listening don't even have team members yet how does leadership and the principles of leadership apply to them
1: yeah okay so let's use Simon Sinek's pop culture version of leadership. So leadership is getting other people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really easy way to frame it. I think he's a genius for, mm. um, for saying what has been said for a long time just in a, a different way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so with that in mind, you know, you know you need to understand the intrinsic drivers of every individual person and create this collaborative environment where people bring their best self to work, and it sounds like motherhood statements, um, but it's not. It's not at all. So, if you can provide someone with what the purpose is for the project, for instance, this is the purpose of the project. Perhaps it's setting up a new online course where you want to change the lives of five thousand people. You know, and then you provide them with the motivation to do that. And the motivation, the way to the way to get people motivated is to say to them. Or to understand them at that intrinsic level, what values they have, what what things that they hold important to themselves, and then get them to bring those in at different parts of the project. Um, And I think that if you can do those things, provide purpose, motivation, then direction is is the project management piece of it. You know, being able to give people clear and concise what you know structure phases, those sort of things. If you can do those things, then ultimately you you'd be good leader you know um and and more and more we're seeing now where people are talking about leadership and management as one and the same thing Mm. and i I think i think that in some ways in some ways it is in some ways it isn't but i think the leadership component of it is things that you do really well sandwiches like hey um here's a vision that i have let me share my vision with you let's get around a whiteboard and let me show you a glide path for success and and now sell it, you know, and then sell it through providing purpose, you know, motivation, direction. And then at the end of that, you then go, okay, now this is how we're going to do it. And this is the daily workflow. These are the operational hygiene habits. This is the knowledge continuum that we're going to use. This is the way we're going to save information. This is the file structure. That's all the management piece, but you still need to provide a certain degree of leadership flair to implement the management pieces. The smaller the team, the more the smaller the, t- the team, the more important it is to be collaborative. Collaborative. Mm-hmm. The bigger the team, the more you can find micro leaders and get them to use their vision to bring people along in your vision. Mm. So it's leaderships Amway. It's. <laughs> it's I mean, you know, and if you don't believe me, look at Amway. Yeah, oh, or, hopefully it's or, an easier
0: sell than amway
1: <laughs> well there's other there's other things that have taken amway's place now um uh, i won't i won't go into too many details because i've got friends that, that are in the herbal life industry <laughs> but um <laughs> and and they and and you know what it's beautiful to watch because they are great leaders and they're they're doing they're Doing that, they're collaborating. They're building leaders. They're building frameworks. They're, they're doing management. They're doing it all through collaboration. And um, yeah, it's good to watch.
0: To tie this up for those people that don't have a team yet, how can they use those principles for self leadership? Because I think that this is one of the biggest pieces that people miss when they're starting off their own business is yeah. not is not leading themselves to get to a Can't point be- where they can bring a team on
1: can't believe I'm going to say this, read, read, read Jocko Willick's extreme ownership for starters. Um, and then hold yourself accountable. Hold, you have to hold yourself accountable for your time and your habits and your structure and being consistent, leading yourself is the hardest thing because you, mm-hmm. you're, 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 the, you're the hardest mission you will ever be given, you know, because you know all the tricks to derail yourself Mm. You know you, you know all, you know all the, the, the tricks to talk yourself out of something that's uncomfortable, yeah, and and I just think that it's a difficult thing to do because unless you hold yourself accountable, you'll never really be successful.
0: Mm. Amen to that, 100%. Mm. Bram, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Where oh, yeah, what are you saying? Oh, like mutual love. Like I am so, thank goodness for Facebook, right? If there was no yeah. Facebook, you and I wouldn't be in contact now. Um, yeah, I good. when you reached out, you were living in Dubai. I was like, yeah, wow, yeah. so cool. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, where can where can our listeners go to find out more about you?
1: We've got the one website now. It's www.podcast.warrioru.com.au I think. Um, anyway, we Ooh, just- we'll
0: pop it in yeah. the show notes.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so the, the, the podcast and the website are one and the same. Um, and then there's www.bramconnolly.com, which is the website for the books. Um, and I'm on Instagram, I think warrior you, uh, on Instagram,
2: mm. yeah,
1: warrior you.australia. Mm.
2: Mm.
0: Like I said, mm. thanks so much for coming on. I think that probably I was more excited for, to have you on the show for, for being, you know, nerdy, quiet, who can believe we were both quiet at school? probably two of the quietest people in the class, uh, you know, to be where we are now. I was
2: super stoked to have you on the show and really enjoyed our time together.
1: Thanks, Sam. Hope to catch up soon.